in with a question, and then we're trying to close our sermon time in prayer. And I, I just really feel like part of that's because one of our core values is we are God's family. And I think it's awkward, right? If you come to a family reunion and one person talks the whole time and everyone goes home. But sometimes that's how church can be. I really hope that as a, as a church, we would make space to get to know each other, to hear each other's stories, and to really believe that we're family. You know, we're family before we've even met because God's our father. We're family across race and ethnicity and gender because God loves us and he's brought us and called us together under a family of him. And so today, I would love for you, again, renew tradition, turn to a person next to you, meet someone new for the first time. And um, here are the two questions. When have you felt your heart become more closed, not close, but closed to Jesus, kind of cut off and callous. And why did that happen? When did that happen? And then when have you felt yourself become more open to Jesus? And what initiates and motivates those seasons or moments in your life? All right. And so I'll give you guys three to four minutes and then I'll come back up and we'll work through um, the book of Matthew together. I think the the times where I'm not supposed to be doing that, you know, but it's kind of in my back pocket and I don't want God to see I'm kind of hiding from him and make excuses. I'm not wanting to listen because I'm afraid he'll talk to me about that one thing. And other times I think about moments where my my heart felt open to the Lord, where I was just kind of um, I had nothing to hide. I confessed my sins and I just can feel like, man, God, wherever you lead me. Um, I'm willing to go. I just want to be near you. And I, I wonder if, if you've experienced kind of both of those moments or seasons in your life. Sometimes they go for years, right? Sometimes it's years before we step back into church, before we pray again. Sometimes it's these short but really defining moments. When I look at the book of uh, Matthew, we're moving into this new series on Jesus' parables in Matthew chapter 13. And if you remember how the book of Matthew is laid out, it goes from narrative to discourse, back and forth, over and over again in the book of Matthew. Narrative is um, stories of Jesus' life, his birth, his healings, um, stories of what he's done. And the discourse is his teaching, different sections of teachings or courses that he shares with his disciple. And so when we look at Matthew 1 through 4, it's about the Messiah of Israel. Jesus isn't this disconnected figure from Judaism. He's a continuation all of what the Jews uh, had hoped for in the Messiah. And even Jewish events are precursors and foreshadows to Jesus. When we think about Jesus and his mother and, and father fleeing Israel into Egypt and coming back out of Egypt, it's, it's this fulfillment of this foreshadow of Israel being in Egypt and coming out of it. So even the events of history, not just explicit prophecy, but even Historical events are laying out this hope in a greater hero, in Jesus. And then he starts his ministry and his first teaching in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, where he lays out his uh, kingdom ethics and kingdom life, what it looks like to be a follower of him and live in his community. And he gives this amazing discourse on the Sermon of the Mount. So much... uh, I mean, I think we, we don't appreciate starting a society from scratch and trying to 
give people aligned values, unless you've watched Walking Dead. Then you appreciate it, right? Because all of, all of the legal, uh, all of le- legality and ethics are completely obliviated. Obliviated. Oh my gosh, that took me like six minutes, right? Was that six minutes? And, um, and all these societies are being birthed from very different ideals of ethics. And we have kind of fractures in each of them. And Jesus lays out this really beautiful ethic of kingdom life, kingdom values um, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. But then in 8 through 9, he doesn't just say, he doesn't just put it out there philosophically. He says, I have the power to actually push my kingdom forward. I have my power to push this kingdom of light into darkness. And so I'm going to free people who are enslaved by demons. I'm going to raise the dead. I'm going to deliver people from illness. I am going to have power, demonstrate power over nature. That I'm not talking about just a simple philosophy of God's kingdom. I'm the hero who's going to penetrate darkness in order for it God's kingdom to expand. So that's eight through nine. And then 10, he sits back with his disciples and he starts commissioning them. Not only will I invade darkness, this kingdom of darkness, but I'm going to send you to do it as well. I'm going to send you into mission as missionaries. And there's going to be a lot of persecution that comes your way. And then 11 and 12 is about the persecution that Jesus faces alongside of his disciples from the established religious um, leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, but then this really intimate opposition from his very own family. And we see this from the last sermon. His mother, his brother sit down with him, uh, come and visit him and want to pull him out of ministry because they thought he's gone crazy. And then he looks around the room and he says, who are my mother and brothers and sisters Those who do the will of his father, my father. And he points to his disciples. And I think in this really isolating space, um, in in the narrative of 11 and 12, we kind of have this bittersweet ending where Jesus redefines his community and and he's redefining our community as well. That when we feel um, separated from our friends, because we don't want to binge drink till three anymore because we've stopped doing drugs. Jesus says there's another community you could belong to. When we feel separated from our coworkers because we're not willing to trample on our people or gossip or be unethical to rise the ranks of, our, of the ladder, Jesus says there's another kingdom and community you can be a part of, another family. And then... What's interesting is he makes another pivot and he goes again into discourse, into teaching. And this is where we're at. In chapter 13, there's these mysteries of the messianic kingdom that he starts to share with his disciples through parables. And the first parable that we look at is the parable of the sower. But we're actually going to push that to next week because there's this middle section that explains why Jesus is speaking in parables. And then as we look at parables in the next few weeks, we, we are framed through this question, right? Jesus came to him and asked, why do you speak to people 
in parables because I think it's a little disappointing for his disciples. He's gathered all of this interest, hundreds, maybe thousands of people have come to listen to him. And he shares about like a boy who's bored tending sheep. You know, he cries unicorn or three pigs that decide on different building materials for their house. And one doesn't get blown over or this girl who runs to her grandma's house with a red cloak and um, doesn't notice she got super hairy. Right. And then he sends them home. Wouldn't that be disappointing if you invited someone to church this morning and I talked about the three little pigs and I just kind of like, and we're done. I know, there's no meaning, it's just over. So why is Jesus kind of sharing about agriculture in really like obvious ways? Don't plant uh, in rocky soil. Don't throw seeds on the road, right? There's this pearl that's really valuable and so valuable that you should sell all your stuff and go obtain that pearl. I mean, it doesn't feel really profound. There doesn't feel like there's a lot behind it. You know, Jesus explains why he shares in parables. But I I thought this was a funny joke that none of you will probably laugh at. But I feel like he explains why he shares in parables through riddles. He replied, because the knowledge of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, Whoever um, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You'll be ever hearing, but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For these people's hearts have become callous. They hardly hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. And so as Jesus is uh, explaining why he's speaking in parables, he is dividing this group of people, these hundreds, even thousands of people into three categories. And he does this often in his teaching. He'll often address the disciples. And then other segments, he'll address the Pharisees, the people who um, are opposing him, who see his miracles, who hear his teaching, but they they disbelieve or they doubt or they um, attribute a demon being delivered to Beelzebub. So they're opposing Jesus. Jesus speaks to them. And then he speaks to his disciples who have their hearts open to him, who wants to learn more. And as he does both of these things, there's these observers, the crowd, who's making a decision to either be on the Pharisees' camp and oppose Jesus or to be a disciple and follow him. And the beauty of the parables, this is what Jesus is saying. I'm speaking in parables because what a parable does is it becomes a self-filter. When the crowd listens to a parable, it will filter their heart. Their hearts will come to the surface. If their hearts are hardened, they'll hear a parable and they'll say, that was stupid. Why did I waste my time? I, I don't get it. And they'll walk away disappointed and even uh, put themselves in alliance with the Pharisees in opposing Jesus. But there's other people in the crowd who will hear a parable. And their hearts will come to the surface. And they'll become more curious. They'll ask questions. 
they'll wonder more. And they'll become even more hungry and thirsty. And for those, more of God's kingdom, more of who Jesus is will be revealed to them. But those who hearts are calloused, that callousness will grow. And even the knowledge they had, they'll deny or it'll be taken away. You know, I, I think about this, um, I think about moments where I went to Union Rescue Mission a few years, um, I've done it for a few years, and I loved it. There were some really, I remember we would go up the elevator with like 20 kids, Mark came with me all the time, and, um, and uh, I would do like a mosh thing where there's kids all around me from our church, and I would just like go like this and like slam people against the walls, and we would come out. That was like my highlight. And then we would serve all these homeless kids and, and hear their stories and see how hungry they were for love as we uh, prayed for them, tried to do crafts. I remember just like five or six kids would just be hanging off of me. And, and I, I just remember thinking, man, they're, they're so void of love that they'll just... They'll just take it however they can have it. And um, I had opportunities to speak to um, the men's and the women's group at their chapels. And a lot of times we would just serve food. We would be in the kitchen um, put, pouring um, like this powder into a huge thing of water. And we would stir it and it would become mashed potatoes. It was like being at Hogwarts, right? Like it was like magic. You just pour this this powder into water and mashed potato happens. And then we would serve chicken and beans and, uh, and rice sometimes. And it would all come in these little trays. Hundreds of people would line up to get food. We're giving them the exact same thing. Mashed potatoes, chicken, beans. But a lot of people would stop and say, thank you. Thanks so much for taking your time to volunteer. Thank you so much for the meal. This looks amazing. And then there was another group of people who would say, man, why do we have mashed potatoes again? Was it from powder and water? No, I just kind of look at the floor. Or um, my chicken piece is way smaller than that chicken's chicken piece. Or, uh, man, I'm going to that other uh, kitchen. They serve better food. And what's amazing to me is they got exactly the same thing but they had a totally different response. You know, Jesus speaks to the same crowd. They see the same miracles. They hear the same discourse. And some people hate him, reject him, and other people cling to him. I think about um, me having the privilege to pastor a lot of you, right? And I'll preach the same exact sermon. You guys are all hearing the same sermon. But some of you, after service, God will have cut your heart and you'll feel convicted and you'll ask him to help you change and you'll confess your sins and others of you will have uh, caught up on your Insta feed, you know, have decided where to eat lunch with your friend and you'll leave the sermon and it's like nothing happened and why did I even come to church? But it's the same sermon. You know, what's interesting about this passage What's interesting about this prophecy is this line in verse 15, right? 14 says, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving for these people's hearts have become calloused. It's not necessarily their eyes and ears. It's really the heart that's filtering out what they see. It's really their hearts that are filtering out 
what they hear. Everyone can see the same thing, but what your heart is looking for will be what you see. We're bombarded by thousands of advertisements every day, but we only, only a small fraction of them catch our attention and gaze. Even though our eyes perceive all of them, our heart only wants specific things. So if there's like um, a cosmetic product, I don't even see it, right? But if it's a beach volleyball, anything, I'll be like, oh my, that's amazing, you know? And then you won't see the beach volleyball. In the same way, our heart dictates our vision. Our heart dictates our ears. And I wonder if we have stopped to examine our hearts. That when we don't see or we don't hear, do we simply think it's external? That the sermon wasn't good enough. The community sucks. The Bible isn't speaking to me. That it's external. Or do we look internal? Do we examine our eyes and say, maybe I have hypertension. Maybe I have diabetes. Maybe my heart isn't functioning correctly. Those are real things. So I, I texted Stephen this morning and asked him, and Grant. I was like, what, what can you examine through the eyes? And they said those things. Um, it's so easy to blame the external instead of saying, God, what about my heart that's making me deaf and blind? What about my heart that has calloused me? So I came in this morning, and I didn't really want to hear. I didn't really believe it's your word. I didn't really think that you would meet me and transform me. I didn't really think that the worship would bring me to your throne room. You know, when I think about what it means to keep our hearts soft, like the disciples, right? The disciples, Jesus says, but blessed are your eyes because they see, your ears because they hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see but did not see it and hear what you hear and did not hear it. He was, he said the disciples were those who heard this parable about agriculture and asked Jesus to explain it to them. Do we have their heart that's hungry, that's humble, that's thirsting? If we just stopped this morning and said, God, what is the, what, what does my heart look like? When I walk into church this morning, what, how would we draw it out? How would we picture it? I think some of us might come, maybe, maybe one of the most blatant causes of callousness is a prideful heart. Here's a chart um, that I took from Eddie, um, Hug Church Pastor. We're good friends. And then I redid some of it. Um, he's probably offended. But uh, this, this bar is confidence, kind of how prideful or confident we are in our knowledge. And this bar is knowledge, what we actually know. And most of our knowledge growth, let's say, is this, is this line, this blue line. It's just kind of we're slowly understanding God more, the Bible more, what worship's about. And I've experienced this a lot in my, uh, when I was a little younger, that I would kind of start learning about scripture. I've read the Bible a few times, you know, I, I know some Greek words that people don't know. I've heard some sermons and all of a sudden, this is how much I think I know, right? So this is how much I actually know. And this is how much I think I know 
how much I think that I understand about God, the Bible, and whatnot. I, I, how much I realize there is to know. So this is how much I think there is to know. Like I've ascended a lot of knowledge and here's like what I maybe have left to learn, the green bar. And I think early in our Christian life, we all can be victims to this. And some of us never get out of there. You know, we come to church with arms folded and we're like, I've heard that sermon. I've read that parable. We go to small group and we're like, man, I'm the most godly person here, obviously. I read all the books. I have nothing to learn from anyone. Um, and Wilson, why is Wilson teaching again? You know, like I've heard him for, I've heard all of his illustrations and we're just, we just approach the Bible. We approach God with this idea that we know everything. And that we have nothing left to learn. We have nothing left to gain from others. And, and that's such an easy place to get stuck. And it's actually extremely hazardous for ourselves and for others, right? We start with, I know nothing. And then the, I'm an extra expert phase. But when you continue to mature in your faith, if you've continued to mature in your faith, you'll come to this place where you know more, but you're, how much you think you know has dramatically decreased and how much you realize you need to know there is to know has dramatically increased and knowledge has a way of humbling us again, has a way of making us feel inadequate, but that's when we learn the best. You know, I think being a young church, I see so many of us caught in this I'm an expert category. And we have this pride in our heart. And when we think about people who are supposed to shepherd us, when we think about the community, when we think about Bible study and Sundays, there's this sense of I already know that. And I wonder what it looks like instead to be humble. You know, to come before God's word, to come to church, to come to small group where we are open and desiring to learn more, where we say, God, I don't know enough. And even the things I know, it's not, my heart isn't fully transformed by it, right? You might have heard this message already, but is your heart humble? Are you open? Do you, have you, has, has your vision become clear? Or you hear a message about humility and you know it already, but your heart is prideful. What good is that? How can we examine our heart and ask God to help us be humble? This is Matthew getting baptized. Um, I love, I love it. I asked his mom for permission and, um, he has, um, Down syndrome. But one of the most humbling things that I've been able to experience is baptizing people with special needs. And I always get chills. I'm always moved to tears when I have the opportunity to sit down with them and explain baptism. When I am able to see how open their heart is and how deeply the gospel penetrates their heart because of its humility. You know, when I think about Jesus' teaching, when I think about Paul, they say, man, the educated, the rich, the self-reliant, those who think that they are, are gifted and talented and smart, those are the people that 
have no place in God's he- in, in his kingdom. And it's those like Matthew who have such an open heart and a simplistic posture before the Lord who are welcomed and maybe who know God better than all of us here. He writes his testimony in this really simplistic way and he holds this plastic yellow microphone to share it with us at the beach. He said, Jesus died for my sins. I asked Jesus for forgiveness. I love Jesus. I want to follow him. I wonder if this morning we can examine our hearts and ask if, if it's childlike, if it's open. That when we have a trouble seeing and hearing, we're not just going straight to the external. Because it's probably more in here than it is out there. You know, some of the ways that I've tried to keep my heart open, and I don't do it perfect, right? Being humble, doing heart exams often. As I come to church, as I sit before the Lord in my own prayer and worship time, I just simply ask, Lord, would you help me to see my own heart? Are there parts of my heart that I'm withholding from you? Are there things that I'm trying to hide? You know, that's that's probably the hardest thing when we are clinging on to a sin and idol, but we're still trying to serve the Lord at the same time, serving two masters. I remember um, this, like, couple years of my life where I was totally addicted to gambling, um, poker. Well, poker is not gambling because it's skill-based. <laughs> That's what I would tell myself every day. And, um, and I was very abusive with it, though. So I'm not saying it's bad to play poker, but I treated it in a really sinful and addictive and um, terrible way. I would put all my money on the table. You know, I've played for thousands of dollars in one hand, which is scary to think about. I remember walking to the ATM and seeing a girl pull out this really large wallet purse, opened it up, and there were like 20, 30, 40 credit cards from obscure banks. She would put it in there one at a time into the machine, hoping to draw money, and all of them, all of them were empty. And God just gently whispered to me, um, that could be you if you keep going down this road. But I kept hanging on to my sin. I kept hanging on to my idol. I'm like, no, God, I'm too smart to be there. I'm too gifted at poker. The first time I walked into a casino, I won 600 bucks. I'm a poker god. So, and it's also for you, Jesus. I'm sharing the gospel at the poker table, having significant spiritual conversation with all kinds of people, filmmakers, pimps, everyone. Um, but then I walked to the bathroom for, uh, you know, because I had to go use the bathroom. And then there's, and then the 1-800 gambling signage all over the casino is like screaming at me. And the Lord is, is convicting my heart, but I push it down. I become more callous. And I wonder what that is in your life. Is there something in your life that you just don't want to talk to God about? Is there something in your life where you close your eyes to his spirit, where you, where you deafen your ears because you want that? instead of Jesus. There's so much freedom and liberty when we let go of our idols and sins and we have our heart towards one master. I think the second thing that can callous our heart besides seeking forgiveness 
is giving forgiveness to others. You know, James says that if you go, if the sun goes down while you are still angry and you haven't forgiven your brother or sister, that you're actually leaving a foothold for Satan. That means Satan now has a right to influence your life, to be in your heart. Isn't that scary? Are you hearing this? Because some of you don't want to hear this right now. Some of you right now, someone is coming to mind and you're like, I just want to be bitter and angry. I don't really want to forgive. I don't really want to let that person go. But that part of your heart is going to become more and more calloused, more and more bitter, more and more angry. How do we say, God, the way you forgave me, let me forgive my brother or sister. How do we allow ourselves to not only hear the passage that Jesus preaches on the Sermon Mount, hey, if you, if you have an offering, but you haven't forgiven your brother, leave the offering, go ask for forgiveness, go forgive, and then come back and give me an offering. Have we applied that in our lives? I know for me, when I'm holding a grudge against someone, I'm not able to forgive, but in some ways, I'm not able to receive forgiveness. And lastly, what does it look like to give our best to Jesus? I, I wonder what it looks like to give our best to him in our time. What it looks like to give us his, our best as we listen to his word and pray and an offering. You know, I wonder when we came to Sunday, did we give our best? For some of us, our best is fighting anxiety to get to the, from the car into a seat 30 minutes into the sermon. But for others of us, you know, maybe we didn't give our best this morning. Maybe we could have came in more ready to receive God's more word. Maybe we could have came in five or ten minutes early and say, Lord, would you speak to me this morning? Maybe we could have came in more attentive. What does it look like for us to say, God, you deserve our best? You know, when I think about Cain and Abel, that was their dilemma, right? Abel had given his best offering to the Lord and the Lord received it. And Abel just kind of gave whatever he wanted and the Lord rejected it. And I don't even know if that concept still exists in our, in our life, right? We just kind of feel like God will take anything from us. Our leftover time, our leftover energy, our leftover finances, whatever is in our pocket. Instead of saying, God, how do we honor you with the best of our life, with our first fruit? Even Nina won't take my leftovers. Her birthday is coming up, October 12th. What if I folded this piece of paper with the lyrics on it, right, and wrote, happy birthday, and I gave it to her? She would reject it. When we sit at home after a long day of, of work, right, and, but I'm trying to share my heart, and she's on Candy Crush, or she's trying to talk to me, and I'm watching Iron Fist because I love that. I love, like, crappy superhero anything. She, what does she say? Hey, could you stop watching that and listen to me? Even my wife, even your friends won't take the worst of you. They demand something of you in order for the relationship to thrive. And I wonder what it looks like to come to God and say, God, I want to give you my best this morning. You know, um, the, last, the last verse idea that comes to mind is um, when Jesus talks to John and Laodicea about Laodicea. And he says, they've done all these great works, right? But 
they've forgotten their first love. And I wonder what it looks like for us to simply live and love, be in love with Jesus again. To go back to those first moments where he touched our lives, when we were abandoned before him, when we remembered what it was to not be tangled by sin and idolatry, but just to run after him. What does it look like to go back to those first moments where we found him? Me and Nina, sometimes for our anniversary, we'll just relive our first date. We'll go to a Korean barbecue, and I'll, I'll, we'll reminisce about how I just stared at her creepily. And then we'll go to a parking lot when I introduce myself. We'll go have ice cream again, and I'll pay for her. Do you remember those times when your heart was the most tender to the Lord, and he was the most real? What does it look like to walk towards that? Because at the end of the day, there's so many things that will reveal our heart. And just like the crowd, there's going to be a line in the sand where we make a decision to go towards bitterness and unforgiveness, where we make a decision to go towards other gods and idols, to go towards pride because we've heard it all. Or we say, Jesus, we want to follow you. I'm wondering if we could just kind of go back to our groups before communion and ask, what's the one thing we can do or pray that will open our hearts to the Lord? You know, at the end of the day, it's probably not going to start externally. It starts with an internal desire for him that we need him to give us, to be humble, to be wanting, to be like Matthew with this childlike faith, And saying, Jesus, would you forgive me? I want to follow you. I would love for us to spend some time in praying for each other and then to take communion together. God, we come to you this morning and all of us have places and aspects of our hearts that are calloused. And I hope that instead of looking around the room and saying it's because of these people, instead of listening, looking at the Bible or at people teaching the Bible and saying it's because they're not good enough. Instead of looking up at you and saying, man, where are you? Why are you distant? Will we first examine our hearts this morning and see the places that are calloused? Would you reveal that to us, Lord? Because our heart dictates our eyes and our ears. Our heart will dictate what we see and what we hear. Maybe we'll just take a few seconds of silence and just ask God, the Holy Spirit, that simple question, God, where is my heart calloused? Would you reveal that to me? Where is my heart calloused? God, I just pray for open hearts and tenderized hearts this morning because of your spirit, not because of guilt or shame, but because of your spirit giving us a heart of flesh and us wanting that this morning. Help us to want that and to receive that. Would you just turn to your neighbors and spend a little bit of time praying for each other and then um, take communion together if you're a believer.